Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see y'all here on a on a rainy, soggy Sunday when a lot of folks are under the weather. I'm glad that you're well enough to be here. Um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I just want to say up front because no one's said anything yet, but I know people are thinking if it, if it looks like. Uh, this side of my face is swollen. It's not your imagination, and I promise I'm not got anything between my cheek and gum. Um, yeah, I, I lost I lost a tooth about six months ago, and my uh, oral surgeon is still trying to figure out how to get the implant in. And I've had two bone grafts, and had another one on Friday morning. Um, a lot of you've had that, had the sinus lift and all that, so, um, so, so if my mouth looks a little funny and I'm talking a little funny, um, if I look, if I seem more foggy-headed than normal, it's from the anesthesia, uh, at least that's my, that's my story and I'm sticking with it, so, um, yeah, I've got all my excuses in line here, so, so here we are, um, on our last day of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, we'll get to amen at the end. Um, but I, wanted, I thought we needed one now. So you are the faithful remnant who have made it to the end. Um, we're in part two today. Um, we, we opened a whole can of worms last week. And um, that's not exactly true. We were, we were actually were just trying to state last week what the scripture seems to be pretty clear about. And the Christian tradition uh, is at its best pretty clear about, but sometimes it's gotten a little muddled about. So we're just trying to be clear about our hope, uh, what our hope is. And last week we talked about that next to the last phrase in the Apostles' Creed, uh, the resurrection of the body. And this week it's the life eternal or everlasting life. Or as the Nicene Creed says, uh, the life of the world to come. Okay. And so I just want to kind of back up and make a bridge from last week uh, on resurrection of the body. Clarify a couple of things, just to make sure everyone heard what I was saying and what I was not saying or not trying to say. It's always dangerous when you're a teacher, when you say things, uh, sometimes your students assume understandably that if you say that then certain things follow so let me make sure that uh, I'm trying to be as clear as I can about this and also want to say today I'm going to be reading more uh, scripture than normal um, just because I want to be clear when we get to something as important and critical uh, as this um, that your hope isn't in what I have to say um, but what God has revealed about where our hope is so ultimately, I want, you to, I want you to hear God's good word here uh, and not just mine. Um, so the first thing I wanted to clarify from last week was um, when we're talking about the resurrection of the body, um, and we are talking about resurrection, we, we, made, we tried to make clear last week that uh, the New Testament writers had lots of options out there if they wanted to say that our ultimate destiny was just the immortality of the soul, that they had all that language there. It was in place. They could have used it. But that's not what they were talking about. 
they were they were talking about what happened to Jesus um, is going to happen to us. And this was an affirmation of the goodness of creation. It was an affirmation of the goodness of God taking flesh in Jesus. And it's ultimately an affirmation in the goodness of our being created as bodily beings. That that's not a mistake. Our bodies, our being enfleshed um, is not, not a problem. It's not something uh, to just throw off. To be clear, though, I mean, if we take Jesus' uh, resurrected body as our guide, there is both continuity and discontinuity in the resurrection. Okay, uh, Continuity is, is important to us because we want to really believe that whatever comes next, right? Uh, when God resurrects us, that it's really going to be us. <laughs> right? And that's pretty important. Uh, so it's when God raises us on the last day, it really will be us. But Paul's also clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's, it's not just going to, God's not going to resurrect um, these old, tired, worn out bodies. Right? Most of us will be happy about that, I think. Right? Um, I, I hear an amen already. <laughs> right? So, um, and, and it's hard for us. I mean, God, God's not limited by having to kind of gather uh, your molecules that make up you now into you later. Right? Um, no reason to think that's what God is, is about. I don't know how, what, what it means exactly. I've been trying to think. I mean, when you start talking about these things, we're obviously stretching human language uh, to the breaking point, which is why so much in Scripture is either poetic or in images, um, in visions, because, um, yeah, there, there's a limit to how far we can make our language go. Um, but what, and analogies always break down, but one of the analogies I was thinking about this week was, um, in some sense, I mean, I've been thinking this week, this has helped me anyway, I've been thinking this week about what it means to think of my life as, as a song. That is, that uh, each of us have a kind of distinct song, if you will, that we are, that our life is a song. Um, but that song, it really isn't a song unless it's played, right? It's not really a song unless it's played. It needs an instrument, it needs a body to sing it, right? And so in some sense, af after death, um, our, our song, our song remains. God holds our song, but, the, but God is not good enough just to have the song, because a song isn't a song unless it's played, right? And so, if you will, God's going to give us a new instrument, an even better instrument than the one we have now, through which to sing this beautiful song that you are, that I am, okay? Um... That might be one way of thinking about it. But the difference is, Paul's very clear, that this, this future existence is, it will be immortal. Not because human beings have something inherently immortal in us. But this is the gift of God. Just as God brought us into existence as a gift, God will, and, and created us, God will recreate us as gift. Not because we have something inherent in, in us, 
that just endures. This is a gift of God. Resurrection is a gift. Okay, it's a gift. It's an act of God. Um, and so, I just want to be clear about that continuity and that discontinuity. Second thing I want to say as a kind of bridge is that the New Testament, uh, we have a lot of questions, understandably so, about uh, what happens, you know, what's our state, what we've, what the Christian tradition has called the, the intermediate state between uh, our death and our resurrection. And the, the New Testament is pretty sparse. It, it does say some things, um, but it doesn't say as much as, at least I'd like to know, maybe not as much as you'd like to know. Um, there were some uh, Christians that were anxious about uh, their brothers and sisters who had died. And so, so Paul in Thessalonians, for example, um, a lot of people worried that, uh, and remember, Paul is expecting the return of Christ pretty eminently, right? And, um, and a lot of people are worried that somehow those who have died will be disadvantaged when Jesus returns, right? That somehow they'll either be left out or, or something like that. But listen to what Paul says in reflecting on that. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says in verse 13 and following, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, because, uh, so a couple of things there. So notice that the, the dead in Christ will rise, will rise first, right? Um, notice Paul doesn't say that they've already risen, um, they're, that they're going to rise first. And then it's interesting how our imaginations play with the next thing he says and says, and we will all be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and they will be with him forever. And because many of us, myself included, have been told that after I die, I go to heaven, and that's my eternal destination right there, uh, we imagine that we're caught up in the air and whisked off to some place called heaven. Um, I don't think that's what Paul means, and certainly it's not what the rest of the New Testament teaches. And you might say, well, why is that picture there? Well, the picture is there in the way we imagine it. I mean, it actually doesn't say what happens next, right? Um, but in Paul's time, and we even see this in the, in the Gospels, right? Um, think about what happens uh, at the triumphal entry. Everyone goes out to meet Jesus outside the city and then welcomes him in. Okay, 
So when I read this passage all my life, right, I thought, well, we just meet Jesus and then we're off, we're whisked away somewhere. But it's just as likely. I mean, there's no reason that the, the, the text doesn't say, right? But again, what we know from the rest of the New Testament, it makes more sense to think that we're gathering in the air to welcome Jesus, almost like a triumphal entry. Because the rest of the scripture is really clear that there's a new heaven and a new earth, right? That comes down from heaven. This is the great image in Revelation 21, right? That a new heaven and a new earth. We'll, we'll, get, we'll come back to this, right? So we don't, we don't know much about this intermediate state. Uh, what we, what little we do know are just a couple of almost offhanded comments. Uh, as you know, in Philippians 1... Uh, Paul makes this comment about, I mean, he's in prison, right? He's having a rough time. He's undergone lots of beatings. He, he must be exhausted. And he's trying to decide whether it's better for him to remain in the, in the body, in the flesh, which he says makes possible bearing good fruit in the world. And yet he also says, as you know, he also says that my desire is to depart and be with Christ, that is better. Now he doesn't say what it means to be with Christ. He just knows that if he dies, he will be with Christ. Right? Um, in the same way that uh, Jesus on the cross seems to suggest to the one of the criminals that you know he will be in paradise with Jesus. Well, for the ancients, paradise wasn't where you went, you know, your final destination, right? Um, but that's, that's what we tend to think. And so there are these glimpses. So what we need to know is that God will hold us, right? God will hold us. We are safely in God's hands. Um, we don't, Scripture is just largely silent on what this one question that we would like to know. And I wish I had more that I could say with confidence and say this is exactly what Scripture teaches. This is exactly what's going to look like. But what scripture focuses on most is not that intermediate state, but what comes after that. This is where scripture focuses the majority of its attention. It's what some people have called, and I, I like this phrase. Once I heard it, I thought, I wish someone had given me that before. It's what we might call life after life after death. Okay? Life after life after death. Because what the New Testament focuses on is that God is going to bring a new creation, right? a new heaven, a new earth, and we will have these immortal bodies. Again, I can't glorify bodies. I can't tell you what those will look like. Perfected. Well, yeah, they're perfected, but I don't know what that means right? any, any more than you do. Uh, doesn't reach that. It doesn't, right? I don't know what a perfect, I mean, I used to play the saxophone. I love playing the saxophone. I can't play it anymore. Lost my embouchure a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know what a perfect saxophone would be. Right? I don't know. Um, but I trust, right? Here we trust that God has promised us. In Jesus we saw, right? Um, a Jesus who was still Jesus, but was also, you know, enough discontinuity there that people could misunderstand, could, could not recognize him, right? But we will be who we are. In fact, we will be more than we've ever been, 
Right? We will not be less than. We will be more than. Right? Because we will be perfected. Right? This is a great Wesleyan right, point. Right? That we are going on to perfection. That, in, that God will not be done with us until we are conformed to the image of Christ. Which is our... What would that will look like for each of us? I have no idea. But this is God's promise. And so what we trust is that God, with a gift, again, God's going to give us this gift of life after, life after death. So I grew up just thinking all we cared about, our hope was life after death. But God's got something better than that. It's this life after, life after death. Right? God is going to resurrect all, right? And then there's going to be the judgment. And those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, we will enjoy life eternal, life everlasting, life of the world to come. That's our hope. Okay? That's our full hope. And so we can't say as much about that as we'd like. The New Testament is also clear about that. But let me just read you a few passages that this notion of life after life after death is rooted in. Because again, it's not just me saying this. this look at Romans 8. This, we could read the whole chapter. We don't have time for that. Because I really do. I promised you I'd finish today. So... We are going to finish today. So Romans 8, I want to read 18 through 25. And listen to what Paul is saying here. You could read the whole chapter. You should read the whole chapter. We'll come back to part of it later. Verse 18 and following. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Here Paul talks about it's not just us. It's the whole creation that's waiting for the new creation. Right? It's not just us that's broken. The whole creation is out of sorts, and God is going to sort all this out. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we await for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Right? So all creation is like like a woman in labor, right? Something new is happening. God is bringing something. And, and it's clear from the New Testament, this has already begun in a sense. This is part of the continuity. The continuity is not just us across this boundary at death, but it's also the rest of the creation. God's not going to just start over again. We'll see that in Revelation 21. So that's one passage, the notion that all of us, including creation, are groaning. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we read part of that last week. Again, we could read the whole thing today. We won't. Um, you'll be happy for that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to 
skip towards the end and read 51 through 58. Here again, Paul's, Paul's talking. This is the same Paul who wrote Thessalonians about being caught up in the air. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's always easy to stop before this last little sentence. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's kind of a surprising end to that, what we call that chapter, because you might think that Paul says, you know, in a moment we're all going to be changed, we're all going to put on imperishability, we're going to put on these immoral bodies, therefore, just sit back and wait for the new world to come, because God's going to wipe all this out and start over. Notice he doesn't say that. Right? He says, Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work you do, the life you live now, is not wasted. Is not wasted. Now, what does that mean? Last passage for now. Flip over to Revelation 21. This is the great vision of John. Uh, about what the end of all things will be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them as their God, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And over to verses 22 through the end, through 26. He says, I saw no temple in the city, this new city of heaven and earth, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will be never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So there's this 
this notion that somehow the kings and the peoples of the world are bringing the glory, bringing those things which were good and honorable that reflected God's glory in, in what we might call the old creation, that they endure into the new. They are part of the building blocks, if you will, of the new city. So this is why Paul can say, you know, be steadfast, immovable. Your work is not in vain. What you're doing now, what by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be gathered up by God and endure into the new creation. So there's continuity and discontinuity also in the new creation. God's not just, just like God's not starting fresh with you, wiping you out, recreating you. God's also not starting from scratch here either. Yes, it's a, a renewed creation. New heaven and new earth, right? God's making all things new. He's making them new. He's not making them from scratch, right? God is redeeming, restoring. The restoration of all things is the great image in Scripture. So what we have to say here is that what we have in Scripture, the way I, I try to think about it is we, we have sort of true, true signposts that point to a reality but right now, what we see, we're seeing through fog, okay? But they're really, truly signposts pointing to a real reality, but we can't see clearly what exactly they're pointing to. And Scripture acknowledges that, right? In 1 John 3, the writer says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. <clears throat> has not yet been revealed. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love chapter you recall at the end, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. So there will come a time when we will know as we are fully known. But for now, we, we have signposts. Okay, we have signposts pointing into a fog. We can't see clearly, but, but we trust that these signposts that we have been given really point to a reality that again is, if once we see it, is more real than what you and I call reality now. Now, what can we say about that briefly in the time that we have? Uh, let's say let's say four things, okay? Uh, no, it's not a three-point sermon. It's four, of course, because I never can shut it down. Um, but four things, briefly. And we're just hinting at things that you know, but now's a good time to kind of gather them up. So what can we say about life Everlasting. Well, the important thing is, I mean, we tend to focus on everlasting. That's fine. Um, but really, it's, it's life, right? The important thing is to say that it's life everlasting. Uh, if it weren't life everlasting, if it was just something short of life, then the fact it was everlasting wouldn't be all that interesting. In fact, it might be really bad, right? So it's life <laughs> everlasting, life eternal, life in the world to come. God is the giver of life, right? In John 10, as you all recall, 
Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly or to the full. And in, in John, it's very clear, right? Um, and, other, and Paul, too, that uh, eternal life begins now, right? It begins now. This is part of what we confess, right, in our, in our baptism. This is Paul's whole point in Romans about baptism, that in baptism, there's a real sense in which the old me, the old Jew, dies. And it's this beautiful picture of death and resurrection. So there's a sense in which life, as God understands it, life given to us by the Spirit, is, has begun now and will extend into the age to come. Okay. Uh, eternal life is not something that starts even at the resurrection of all things. Right? It has already begun. Eternal life starts now. Notice Paul's, go back to Romans 8, but go earlier, Romans 8, 11, uh, just to tie in the fact that the Spirit is, you know, in the, in the Nicene Creed, the Spirit is called uh, the Spirit, the Lord, the life giver, right? Um, this goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, right? That God breathed, you know, the word spirit means breath, right? Back to the very beginning of Genesis, God breathes into us life. And the spirit breathes into us the new life of Christ, right? The very spirit that animated Jesus has been given to us to animate us, to make us possible for us to live the life we were always made for, right? So Paul can say in Romans 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. And here Paul's talking about right now. The Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies right now. Right? And so this is good news, right? That the Spirit, eternal life, by the gift of the Spirit, begins now. The Spirit is the life giver. It is a kind of down payment. We are the first fruit, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not that we're waiting until the end of time to enter eternal life. Have we experienced it fully yet? No, we haven't. But we have tasted of the goodness of God's eternal life. So the first thing we want to say about eternal life is, is it real life? made possible by God, and it's a better life than the life that I want for myself. Second thing, the other image that's so powerful in Scripture is not just life, but, but light, right, is light. Light and life are connected. Remember what John says in the opening prologue in the Gospel of John. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Right. Just think about the Gospel of John, how often John is talking about light and darkness. Right. Um, and in the Christian tradition for so long, I mean, one, of the, um, one of the prayers of the, the, the Mass that some of us have heard and sung right, uh, is about, you know, let perpetual light shine upon them, right? That somehow uh, light 
uh, is connected with life. Notice that when we read the the Revelation passage just a minute that just a minute ago, that in this new this new Jerusalem, if you will, this new heaven and new earth, there is no need for sun or moon, because the glory of God is the light that illuminates and gives life in the city. Right. So it's a it's a divine light that we enter into. And there is also a sense, of course, that light makes seeing possible, right? Um, and, and knowing possible is what we call enlightenment, right? Being enlightened. Um, and notice that in that passage we just read from the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says that we will come to know fully as we are known. And I think this is part, uh, this is also part of the good news of the life in the world to come. That, that we will not just know God, um, and here know is not just intellectual, right? The language of knowledge in scripture means an intimate communion with. That we will be more intimately in communion with God than we've ever been. But scripture is very clear that knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves are intimately connected. And so I think that I think one part of the good news of the life of the world to come is that we will finally see ourselves in the light of God rather than the light of ourselves. And that's good news, right? Um, there are plenty of days, and you might feel this yourself, where I am a, a mystery to myself. Right? I'm certainly a mystery to other people, and that's a polite way of saying it. Right? Um, and we certainly know other people's mysteries. We sometimes our children are mysteries to us. If you have children, like like, you know, who are you? Whose child are you? Right? Um, and they sometimes ask the same of us, like. What happened to my parents? Where did they go? Right? But think about, I mean, if, if God, um, this is where we're going, right? Think about being seen the way that God sees us. And not, I mean, the temptation is to think that God's holding up every uh, broken piece of us, every weakness. I don't think so. Right? I don't think so. Uh, I think when God has remade us and perfected us in Christ, um, we will see uh, something that we've never seen, and that is uh, the glory that we were intended uh, to have by being created in the image of God from the beginning. And most days when I look at myself, I see something so far short of it that it can be a little depressing. Right? But... On the last day, we, we, will, we will know as we are fully known. And that's good news. That, that, that's where our hope is. And then the third thing, besides uh, life and light, is, and connected to that, is, is rest. Right? There's a sense of rest. And here I don't mean rest in the sense of uh, inactivity or... Uh, you know, that uh, life in the world to come is just going to be, you know, a really, really long retirement. Right. Um, there's good reason to think there'll be good work to do in the new, the new world. Right. Because work was, God, was a good gift of God's original creation. 
right? God gave Adam and Eve good work to do in the garden. That was part of God's original plan. So I don't think we'll all just be sipping, you know, pina coladas uh, by the pool um, in God's good, as, as good as you might think that would be. Um, so th this rest, right? This rest, uh, to find our rest in God's presence. Um, you remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, there, there is a Sabbath rest waiting for the people of God, right? Um, and one of, the, one of the great gifts of the Sabbath for the Hebrew people was uh, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was the great equalizer, right? Because you couldn't do any work, your identity couldn't be wrapped up in what you do. Uh, if you're like me, uh, my identity is wrapped up a lot in what I do. Um, I've, talking, I've talked to a lot of people um, who have retired, uh, and I don't want to generalize too much, but some people have confided in me, the hardest thing about retirement for them has been what feels like the loss of their identity, because so much in our world, our identity and in our culture, who we are is tied up with what we do. But what about the beautiful rest that comes in the presence of God where God lets us see who we are as God sees us and realizes that God has never loved us, honored us, gloried in us because of what we do, but because of who we are. Uh, and to be able to rest in that, finally, right? We've heard that all our lives. What does it mean to really be able to rest in that on the last day, to take, to take Rest in the presence of God, knowing, as Paul says, that in Christ there, there is no condemnation, that we, we can rest in how God sees us and knows us, and how we have come to see ourselves rightly for the first time. And that brings us to the last thing, which is really the first thing, and that is it's not, the life in the world to come is not only marked um, by life and by light, and by rest, um, but by love, right? But by love. Uh, love is what brought the world into existence. Now we're back to the first article of the creed, that God creates not out of necessity, but God creates out, the, out of the overflow of the divine life, that the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, it overflows Okay, this, this love is, is unbounded, overflows into creation because God desires to love that which isn't God. And so God brings into creation out of love that which is capable of being in communion with God. So that's where the story began. That's where the creed began. And here at the end, Paul says, you know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But love never fails. Love never ends. Okay. In the new heaven and the new earth, we won't need faith and hope, right? Because we will see face to face. But love endures, right? There, this, this kingdom, this new world, this recreated, this new heaven and new earth will be a kingdom, right? A city of love that's rooted in God's love that exists out of the overflow of God's love. And that, again, begins here. This is what we need to remember, right? This is why we've been called to love now. Not because it's just good for us or good for the world, but because this is a mark 
of who God is and what, where God is taking all of creation. So John, in, in chapter 4 of 1 John, says, If we abide in love, we abide in God. Right? Notice how closely love and abiding in God remain. Or he says in the chapter before, When we love, we pass from death to life. And the writer doesn't mean like someday. He means like right now. Right? Because this love is the source of our light. Go back to Romans 8, this passage that we've read so much. Um, it's a good reason we read this um, when we are gathering to um, offer to God, place into the hands of God our loved ones, right, who have died. There's a good reason we remind each other that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, right? That's what Paul says, right? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love uh, is more important than knowing the creed. Okay, We focus a lot on the creed uh, for the last you know, several years. Um, not because your, your status before God hinges on your knowing the creed. Um, but we've tried to be clear as we can about what it is that we affirm, other than that it's good to wait until the train goes. So we'll wait 20 seconds and let the train go. <clears throat> But I found myself this week thinking that I wanted to wanted to paraphrase, you know, the opening to that chapter 13 of Corinthians. Um, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I understand every line of the Apostles' Creed, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Okay. The story begins with God's love. It ends with God's love. And it ends with our confidence, our trust, we said from the very beginning, the Apostles' Creed is an act of conviction. It, it's an act of trust. We, we announce to ourselves, to each other, and to the world where our trust is, in whom we place our trust. It's this God who brings all that is into existence through love, who redeems all that is through Christ because of love, who will restore, renew, 
recreate through the power of the Jesus Spirit all things in love. That's where our hope is. That's where our faith is. And that's why at the end we can say amen. Right? Which as we've we've worked hard in here to try to educate ourselves doesn't mean it's over now. We can get on with our lives like at the end of a prayer. Right? It's not a, a subtle way of saying the prayer is over. Right? It's a way that at the beginning we start off with I believe. And each of us says that because we all have to can say where our trust is, but at the end we say amen together, right? We say, so be it, may it be so. This is the truth of God, and this is where we stand. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, that you have not left us to our own devices to uh, figure out for ourselves who you are, who we are, and what you are about in the world. We give you thanks for faithful men and women across the generations who have uh, kept these scriptures uh, safe and have handed them down to us faithfully. We give you thanks for the traditions of the church that have written things like the creed to remind us of the central tenets of our faith. And so we pray that you might take our humble efforts to understand our deepest convictions, that you might use those for our good, you might use them for your glory, and that ultimately they might be used to make us the people you've called to be for the life of the world. We pray this through the one who most preeminently showed us your heart, your love for all of creation, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.